Hello and welcome to the Glasgow Museum's podcast. We're delighted to be celebrating all things Mary Quan in this episode as the Fashion Revolutionary Exhibition comes to Kelvin Grove as part of its international tour. We hear from our Curator of Dress, Rebecca Quinton, in conversation with Jenny Lister, Curator of Textiles and Fashion at the V&A Museum, and former Co-Director of Mary Quant Limited, Heather Tilbury-Phillips, as they discuss the contributions and legacies of the fashion icon, who passed away on the 13th of April 2023, aged 93. I'm Jenny Lister, I'm a curator at the V&A Museum and I co-curated the Mary Quant exhibition. Hello, I'm Heather Tilbury Phillips, I'm a former director of Mary Quant Limited and advisor to the V&A on the Mary Quant exhibition. And today we're chatting here in Glasgow at Calvin Grove Art Gallery and Museums, which is the seventh host the V&A's very successful Mary Quant exhibition. I hear you've had over a million visitors, which is amazing. Jenny, what made the V&A decide? Well, you probably more to the point. How did you persuade them to do this wonderful exhibition? Um, yes, so it was quite a process we had to go through and reflecting on it, um, I think it was so helpful for me that I had personal memories of having my own Mary Quant Daisy doll as a child in the 1970s and a real sense of Mary Quant's contribution to fashion. So it had been something building in my mind over my quite long now career in um, curating fashion in museums. Um, and I think there's a real trigger for me in 2006 when I worked on an exhibition about 60s fashion in London and at that point I met Mary Quant and it just became so obvious that her huge contribution hadn't been properly acknowledged, properly acknowledged. Um, and she was seen as part of this London scene, but I could see how early on her influence had been so important. So that um, inspired me really, this is a very long answer to your question, but really to start expanding the collections of Mary Quant in the V&A. Because of course the V&A is so much known for couture collections and really high-end fashion and Mary Quant was very well known for making fashion accessible and democratic and almost for high street fashion. Um, so through various um, offers of donation from people who had kept their Mary Quant clothing, um, sometimes they were just ordinary customers who had kept things and donated them to the V&A and then a particularly significant one was um, the goddaughter of Pamela Howard Mace, who Heather worked with in the 1970s. So her, after she passed away, her goddaughter donated a large collection of her clothing. And that really illuminated for me how we could, um, how Mary Quant's own story would be interesting to develop into an exhibition, but also how that could show how Mary Quant's business had employed other women and how their careers were advanced through working for Mary Quant and how interesting all the different customer stories would be. So it built into this bigger and bigger project. Um, it certainly did take time. It was quite a campaign. Um, I guess it was quite a, a different slant for the V&A to do an exhibition about, um, quotes, a high street designer. Um, but we had a new director come into the museum, Tristram Hunt, in, I think it's about 2016, 2017. And by that point, I had met Heather and we had a long talk about how we felt it'd be really important to recognise Mary Quant's um, contribution. She wasn't a dame at that point, was she? But no. That came along as a, you know, building into our ammunition for our campaign. Tristram supported the idea. Um, 
And I guess alongside that as well, there was increasing awareness of feminism, really. Um, we didn't really talk about feminism for a long time. Um, you know, after I was at university, I felt, you know, I was a feminist, but we, we just got on with it, didn't we? And, and with the Me Too movement, it felt there was a kind of new generation that wanted to talk about feminism, how there were still gaps that needed to be filled, how we should be thinking about these issues and how we should be supporting each other as women. And I think that, um, I don't know, I felt outraged really that there hadn't been a Mary Quanta exhibition and so it became really important and luckily it all came together at the right time. And I'll talk again later about the We Want Quant campaign and how we encouraged lots of people to donate their garments to fill in the remaining gaps in our collection and it kind of became this whole movement really to deliver the exhibition and that's what people have come to see so it's lovely that we've achieved it and yeah amazing that it's been around the world and that millions of people have seen it and hopefully many more will come at Glasgow so it's like being reintroduced to old friends and these dresses coming back. And I think it's lovely you, you talked about her democratising fashion and in a way it sounds like she's almost helped democratise the V&A's exhibition programme in terms of widening it out. Um, yeah. I mean, she has been touched upon. She was a key figure in the in the London book, but I do think you do tend to kind of associate her with that the, the next generation of designers that were coming through. We forget how early she was that she was starting in the in the mid fifties when you've got rationing just just coming to a close in terms of that's why she's so important that she is a step ahead of everybody. Yeah. Um, so no, that's brilliant. And Heather, you you worked with her. What was that like? What was she like? <laughs> well, rather surprisingly, Mary was quite a shy, diffident person. Not overconfident, but she was always totally inspirational, very collaborative, supportive, um, exciting to be with. And when she was being interviewed by the media, for instance, she'd often find it quite difficult to get going and answer the questions. But this is where Alexander was so supportive. He'd be there and we'd all be encouraging her, sometimes putting the questions in a different manner. And once she got going, she just burst with enthusiasm and wonderful sound bites and just carried everybody with her. And this was coupled with a steely inner determination that what she really believed in was right and she was jolly well going to find a way of achieving it and encouraging us to do the same, which was enormously empowering. It was challenging, but very stimulating. And it meant that each day was entirely different. You went into the office first thing in the morning, thinking you know, knew what you would be doing. Within three minutes, everything had turned around because there was another crisis to be solved or something else that was more important or urgent. Um, so it was just wonderful and truly very happy period. Oh, that's wonderful. And I think that sense of fun, of collaboration, um, of, of the energy really does come across in the exhibition. 
it's a tremendously colourful exhibition which reflects Mary's diverse appeal because I can remember in London listening to people talking about the clothes and they were saying, oh, I remember that. I met my husband when I was wearing something just like that. And then others of 16, 18 would say, oh, I really want to wear that now. It's timeless. So appealing right across the board. Yes, um, and I think it is it's those memories. It's kind of the memories of Mary, but also the memories of the people, that biographical approach I think is so lovely about it. We're hearing this wonderful, innovative woman and her design approach backed up by this triumvirate of Alexander Frank McQueen and Archie McNair. But then also these stories that you've collected, uh, Jenny, through the various campaigns, which I hope you'll talk to us about, um, that tell us about the consumers, the women who would buy it. I mean, you, you can produce, you can manufacture, but if you haven't got the people wanting to buy it, that's only half the story. And you found most wonderful stories and contributions for people with very fond memories of themselves, starting new careers, starting new family lives, spending, saving up and buying a married one dress. Which, which were those, those do you think were really lovely stories that you'd like to share? Oh gosh, there are so, so many. Um, I think it, to start in the early period of the company in the late 1950s, um, it was just a really fascinating to, to talk to women who had just been walking past the King's Road shop, um, seeing a window display, maybe even seeing Mary Quant wearing something, putting something into the window saying, I want to look like that. So they would pluck up the courage, you know, maybe it was a little bit intimidating to go into this new, very arty shop, um, but it, they would find the clothes that kind of illustrated their own personality that they could identify with. And I think they all, they, many of the women who donated the clothes had kept them because they were very meaningful to them for that, from that formative period of their lives. I mean, one that stands out for me in particular is Tereska Pepe's hat. And she had kept beautiful photographs of her wearing her hat with a wonderful denim dress that sadly no longer survives. But Tereska's story is incredible. She was born in, in Poland and came to England as a refugee, as a little girl in the war. Um, and in a way, we can call together all these other stories of post-war Britain and how it was a refuge for people with fleeing persecution, essentially and how they found a life, they, they married, they settled, maybe they went to art school, as so many of the women featured in the exhibition did, and how that creative life gave them opportunities, how the fashion industry gave them opportunities. Um, so we focus on a few of these particular stories, and all of these women are so different, but somehow they found something in Mary Quant's design that kind of that unified that approach to life, that, you know, that wanted to take the opportunities that were kind of newly available in post-war Britain with the, you know, edu better education, with a welfare state that was more egalitarian, I guess. And until then, fashion had been a, a bit more remote and people, once you reach a certain age, you might be dressing like your mother, you know, wearing gloves for formal occasions. And it was still a, a society that was very... Um, you know, hierarchical, I guess. And if you came from a certain social background, you might be presented to the Queen at you know, the debutante's balls, which only came to an end in 1958. So 
it was a time of such huge social change and I think Mary Quant's story just shows the emergence of the world we recognise today with huge amounts of change in terms of visual media, visual communication and I think because of Mary's strong look um, she was able to tap into that increase of circulation of images they worked with all the best photographers, um, all the best graphic designers, um, and it was just such a creative time. Um, I've veered away from the point of the question now, but um, yeah, I think it's great that the exhibition could cover such an interesting time. And it was just lovely to talk to the women themselves, and often it was daughters of the women who felt so strongly that they wanted their women's, that their mothers stories to be represented and we could just show this big spectrum of society and um, I don't know opening out from London into the north of, the, of Britain into Scotland into Wales and also outside Britain as well um, so yeah it was a lovely response we got to this call out we did for um, the Leland Bond campaign um, and hopefully people will come to see these stories in the exhibition and focus on a few of the some films um, in the interviews in the later section of the exhibition. Yeah, I think it really does show her wide range that, I mean, we refer to it now as the London look, but it wasn't. It came out, it, you could get it up here in Glasgow in the local department stores, you could buy your ginger root. It went overseas into America, to Australia. So it really does kind of make it available to so many more people that previously hadn't. And as part of that shop of the new, we get the new designs. She's obviously quite famously involved in the in the development of the mini skirt, and I'd love to hear more about that. But in particular, I'd also like to know about the tights. For me, I keep thinking, unless you can do a really good tan and your climate is good, which we don't always have up here in Scotland, you don't really want the skirts to rise up unless you've got a good pair of opaque tights. Ah, well, I think Mary's discussion that's. Um a strong enough word with the hosiery manufacturers was really quite amusing because at that particular time it was mainly theatrical types so ballet companies had them in pink or black and drama companies had them in white or black mainly um, and Mary said no I want them in ochre pink strong colours that will either clash or match the colours in my collection for this autumn or spring or whatever it was. And of course, stocking tops and suspender belts and shorter skirts didn't really go together. They were not a pretty sight. So as soon as the tights were available, often in patterns as well, then up went the skirt lengths. And the mini was truly worn and could be worn by everyone. It took a while though, didn't it? I think people, um, well, I really wanted to explore that detail of the progression from stockings into tights and what a big shift that would have been, you know, to suddenly be wearing these really hopefully comfortable tights that unified your, your mini skirt with your, your, your feet and sort of pulled the whole look together. And one of the things we do focus on is this very careful look at how dress hem lengths moved from the early 60s towards the later 60s because I think there's often a, a tendency just to think of the 60s as you know the miniskirt started in 1960 but actually you don't see that in the dresses that survive 
hem lengths are literally below the knee, it's quite surprising. So it did actually take until 1966 really for the really kind of thigh high skirts to come in and I'm sure that's because tights were more widely accepted by then and people were buying buying them. But you you do find photos of women wearing stockings with short skirts and you get a gap that obviously is not ideal. And we take these things so for granted now, don't we? So I wanted everyone to, to find out more about that in the exhibition. And Mary herself has had fabulous legs and she still in the 50s was wearing her skirts. There is a photograph of her, 1959, I think it is. Um, and she's wearing her skirt above the knee, which of course was considered totally shocking at the time. Yes, if you think about it in terms of debutantes, and I know my mother was at school at that point, you had to kneel and the skirt had to touch the ground when you were kneeling, otherwise you would definitely not be right. <laughs> but then you see it, and in her early, very first early designs, where she's been inspired from the 1920s, where of course the skirt's raising down you length, it's just above the knee, and then you can just see it. It's just each each year as it, as it, as it progresses through to the kind of almost micro mini that everybody's just daring each other to be taken mm. another inch off. Mm. Yeah, I think I remember you saying how Heather, how um, in the office she would come into the office having seen someone wearing something really short and she would say something. Can you remember the story yes. I'm thinking well, about? Yes, well, I mean, that was um, very much the case with off-pants, which we haven't necessarily talked about. But I can remember viv vividly her coming in the evening before a press show and we, had, we were showing off-pants at the breakfast press show the next morning. And she was, went up to the workroom and she said, I've changed my mind. I want them shorter. <laughs> and it was um, an all-night session because there were about four inches chopped off. They were going to be a bit more ladylike, rather like just above the knee shorts. And no, she decided they were going to be uh, very much and I'm sure that must have been wearers as well who who also took that. Jenny, did you, did you find that there was evidence of women perhaps surviving examples where they had taken the hands up to keep wearing their dresses over the subsequent years? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's something you probably find in the Glasgow collection as well. Um, yeah, I mean, what you really want is a dress that's never been altered, don't you? Really, it's a sort of pristine example, but that's very rare for the 1960s because I think women often did kind of chop off a few inches from a dress that maybe they'd bought in 1964, but they were still wanting to wear it a couple of years later. Um, but something I really enjoyed as well is talking to women who found that their fathers were, you know, appalled at the idea of them wearing these, these really shocking new skirt lengths. Um, and I think it probably was relatively rare to see women wearing miniskirts, you know, um, when they first came in, and it was probably a while before things moved out of London, you know, and came up to places like Glasgow. Um, but I love that idea that people could customise the dresses as well and um, wear the skirt lengths that they really felt most comfortable with. And you can't really talk about the mini skirt without talking about shoes as well, because that's something that is included in the exhibition, this shift from kind of high-heeled court shoes of the early 60s, or with beehive type hairstyles, which Mary completely overturned with her Vidal Sassoon 
swinging bob, the short bob, um, and you needed flat shoes to complete the look as well. And she developed these really, um, really interesting synthetic shiny plastic shoes that were almost, to me, they're like precursor of the trainers that we all wear with everything now. And it just meant you could run around, you didn't have to change your shoes depending on what you were doing. Um, so I think she was really ahead of her time there. And um, just provided, she thought about everything, hadn't she? I think that was that was the thing. It wasn't just about fashion. It, it was instinctive yeah. that she wanted fashion to work. She wanted the wearer to have the freedom the ability to run for a bus if that's what she had to do, to work, to go out and dance in the evening. So Mary was very practical and she thought that clothes should enhance the personality and the overall look should leave one with the freedom to do what one wanted and not worry about it. And she didn't like heels skirts. She thought they looked arty and that's one of the reasons why it was so marvellous to be able to wear comfortable flat shoes um, as well um, as soaring hemlines. And I think that practicality comes through in some of the wider products that she designed with the use of uh, new materials. Um, I'm thinking about the underwear with the lycra. I mean if you're bringing in practical clothes, a new look, they're not so structured, they're not so tailored and fitted around the bodice, then you, if you want to have a new design for your underwear as well. Well, I do believe another of her real um, cherries for us all was the introduction of the bra and pants sets, which were actually exactly the same structure as the tights. They were slightly heavier in weight, but they were knitted nylon. And of course, with rather androgynous figures that most people had still those days, you could wear them, wash them, they'd be dry the next day. If you were traveling, you didn't have lots of different sets of underwear to carry. You could just have the minimal um, and put on fresh, clean ones the next minute, which was perfect. So that made a huge difference. Yes, and it seems to be an excess, uh, one of the successes and revolutionary approaches to their business, in that she was able to do to do a range from top to toe, from kind of berets through to the shoes, and a lot of that done through licensing agreements to make the best use of her designs but with the practicality of manufacturers in terms of their knowledge of the fabrics. So you get wonderful things like her coming up to Scotland to visit Viella and Coates in Paisley, from here in Glasgow, James Pendleton from carpet designs, um, and the doll has her connection. These seem to be quite unique, and which were the particular collaborations that you think were really pushing the boundaries in terms of design? Um, oh, there were so many of them from the hosiery that we've always that we've already mentioned. Of course, the cosmetics was hugely groundbreaking because in 1966 um, the licensing agreement with Gala was signed, and Mary wanted to move makeup on instead of a rather thick pancake type. 
foundation. She introduced Starkers, which was a very sort of soft and fine face covering, which was absorbed by the skin and was also good for the skin because it contained moisturiser. So it covered up blemishes, but it left the wearer feeling as if she wasn't wearing makeup. And then, of course, there was the eye makeup and this marvellous introduction of waterproof mascara, which was one of the products which revolutionised wearing eye makeup. So you could go swimming, you could go and watch a weekly film, um, and indeed they called the product Crybaby. So the other licences were also groundbreaking because she worked with ICI on introducing bedwear, sheets, pillowcases, duvet covers, stretch covers um, for the home. And she demanded, not just asked, but insisted that the colours were not primrose or pale blue or pink, which is what sheets have always been. It, they would be purple, dark brown, navy blue. And men in grey suits said, Mary, we can't do that. They'll bleed in the washing machine. And she said, oh, I know you'll find a way. And of course they did. And it transformed bedsit living, the way people viewed their homes, because rooms became much more inclusive. It didn't matter. It didn't look like a bedroom. It could be a living room as well. And that went through to kitchenware, all sorts of other products. So it really does become almost like a lifestyle hub. I mean, we're so used to that nowadays, but to be first person to review, think that through. We're talking about 1970 when this started, which was very early. I think colour is so important, isn't it, to talk about with her. Um, and you see in the exhibition how there's a shift from kind of monochrome walls with occasional flashes of bright colour. She had these favourite tones of ginger, prune and plum and quite odd colour combinations. It was wonderful. Yeah, like a bright, bright mustardy yellow. Mm. Um, and then that changes as I think textile technology was changing too, hand in hand with fashion. And so you get really bright primary colours coming into the mid-60s. Um, and I think it's that approach that I don't know, you almost get the darkness into light feel, don't you? Which you I guess do. you see in magazines as well as the technology changed as well. Um, and then, of course, the technicolor, sort of psychedelic colors of the late 60s and 70s. Um, and it's it's shocking in a way because it feels so modern, doesn't it? But well, yet, it does. 60 years ago, yes. this was happening. Yes, that ability to no longer just have a beige red coat, but to have one in bright red and purple, um, which is definitely up here on our grey weekdays, to be able to have, to have that ability to walk down the road in a bright colour, like with waterproof mascara, like Jessica just been so, so wonderful. And as part of that brand, there is that fantastic logo, the Daisy logo. That really, again, to me, strikes me as trailblazing in terms of creating a brand and identifying identifying a brand for not just a domestic automarket but internationally. 
yes, I think you're right. It was so modern to, to develop that into a kind of badge of unity that people could recognise very visually. You didn't need to reuse the language. It kind of went hand in hand with Mary's um, name, her own name, which was so much a part of the brand. It's a very recognisable, short and memorable name. Um, it's almost classless, isn't it? I suppose Mary Collins is hard to pin down. Um, you don't meet anyone else with a surname that's like that. Um, so I think that was another really lovely part of her overall um, impact. But the Daisy logo, I mean, it's totally timeless now. Um, so clever. And I think it almost developed by accident out of a little dress design. And you've got the 1964 dress, which has two little daisies trimming at, um, at the neck. And that's... It, it was formalised into a very minimal kind of black and white logo that could be used for underwear, could be used in makeup. Um, then, of course, the Daisy doll came in, which obviously could be wrapped into this whole approach. And it became a kind of um, symbol of this attitude of fun, you know, very much opposing this dingy post-war period when everyone had had to kind of tighten their, their belts. You know, everything was limited. It was a bit boring, but this explosion of colour that you get in the 60s um, all seems to be represented by the Daisy brand um, which is so so clever and so strong it could be seen on cosmetics from one side of a department store to another and immediately you know knew it represented Mary Pond she always felt very strongly it should be black on white or reversed, white on black, but of course the colour was introduced and now you see it on packaging in every colour you can imagine and it still says the same message, this is Mary Pond. It's fantastic because you, you've had signatures before and they were just that, if you look at the inside of work dresses, it's a signature woven the scaparelli tights came and it was a signature but that doesn't from a, on the other side of the shop particularly when you get into the big department shops you're just seeing handwriting it takes a while you've got to get very close and that might only work if it's a language you read whereas the daisy doll i mean as you say you can see it on the poster as you're whizzing down the king's road on a bus and it's important to emphasize that we are talking about the little 60s not about now when we would recognise the Apple uh, logo, for instance, immediately. This was all those years before. Yes, certainly. I mean, this is where she is one of the things that is so innovative. And when you go around the, the exhibition, you have to be guessing pictures on because actually, this is, we're not talking about something that happened in the last 10, 20 years. This is something that, that is now. 60 years ago exactly. and actually it's so familiar because it, it trailblazes, it, it becomes the logo that so many so mm. many subsequent to do. So, I mean, yes, I think we could talk for hours probably about <laughs> what made the brand so successful. Um, and one of those I think is just is that actually behind working with Mary is this very fantastic triumvirate of her husband, Alan Sarandon, and Archie McNair in terms of bringing the three, the three disciplines of business, marketing and the design together. It was holistic and they were strong. They supported their very small 
team, and this inspired all of us that were working with them to hopefully contribute to that creativity and that explosion of excitement. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well to think about the slightly younger generation that came after Mary Quant, so people like Fole and Tuffin who did amazing designs who were really fun to, as well. Um, there's a whole generation of British fashion designers who were inspired by Mary Quant and she talked at the Royal College of Art on that very famous fashion course which still runs today and I think you know everyone having seen what Mary had achieved with her little boutique many others were inspired to do the same thing and she really kind of laid the foundations for the fashion industry that Britain's known for today these very strong courses that still run that reputation for creativity and real innovation and so many British fashion designers then go on to work in the international fashion industry um, as well as people from other countries coming to London to train in fashion. So it's really good to recognise that contribution too. It's a fantastic legacy in that we have got the legacy of her, her designs and the exhibition which is helping show reintroduce those designs to the next generation. And hopefully by that we're not only celebrating her contribution in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but hopefully she will continue to inspire the current and next future generations of designers. I, th I think that's amazing. So I'm going to draw us right way back now into Chloe Person. I know this is terribly hard, it's like asking you what your favourite child is, but uh, do you have any favourite dresses in the exhibition that you've gone on amongst? It's really hard. I mean, there's not really one. There's so, you know, I need a handful really, but that would take too long to talk through. The one that I kind of can't ever forget really is this lovely, it's grey, it's not colourful, which in a way is not typical of Mary's designs. But there's a, a wonderful dress made out of lovely grey tweed, and she loved working in that grey, sort of sometimes flannel, sometimes tweed, but it was something she used to almost sculpt the body using menswear um, tailoring sort of jackets but and a skirt there's a little flared skirt and the one I'm thinking of is um, I call it the shirt and tie dress I'm sure it had a much more clever name originally when it was designed but it is worn with a striped shirt quite masculine with a tie spotted tie and it's very literally showing on the woman's body how women could break down the barriers of traditional male hierarchies traditional roles and could literally do anything that men could do and it's a very feminist and um, a very feminist statement I think worn um, in this design and I know the woman who donated it Elizabeth Gibbons she was another big part of building the exhibition and she donated several garments um, to the V&A collection um, and I think yeah that's a favourite because I can't very easily separate the dresses from the people as well in her stories so interesting too um, Anyway, um, that's where I'll leave it. I think with my favourites. I'd like to know what yours is, Helen. Oh, I'm not sure I can really be that objective and say one stands out. I think what is, to me, such a wonderful celebration of Mary's genius that this exhibition represents is the enormous diversity from her early work back in the 1950s, right the way through the exhibition go, takes us through to 
1975. And in that time, the colour, the styling, has represented something individual and special for everybody. And everybody can pick out one item and say, oh, I really want to wear that now. Yes, I think that is a fantastic legacy that we all want to be so inspired. So I'd like to say again, thank you so much for sharing the exhibition, sharing your knowledge and your memories. It's been fantastic. Thank you. That's all we have time for in this episode of the Glasgow Museums podcast. If you've enjoyed and want to hear more, you can find more episodes available on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts and on SoundCloud. Just search for Glasgow Museums. Until next time, thanks for listening.